0: you're listening to the IC interviews. I'm Mary McDougall and I'm very excited to be joined by James Anderson and Tom Slater, co-managers of Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Over the last decade, Scottish Mortgage has had one of the best runs of success that any investment trust has ever had and in 2020 alone its assets have more than doubled to over £18 billion. The trust is now several multiples bigger than its largest rival, a remarkable achievement. James, Tom, thank you for joining me.
1: It's our pleasure.
0: Your success is owed much to your early commitment to a clutch of companies in the technology sector, which have become household names. You say in your recent interim report that your views on the giant platform companies have become less differentiated and you have sold out of Facebook and reduced Amazon. You've also reduced Tesla, though perhaps for different reasons. What themes and innovations are you most excited about currently? And do you think a generational shift of companies might be starting to come through?
1: This is one which it's absolutely important for for both of us to uh, give you some thoughts back and your your audience. But if I may start, yeah, I think this is what's incredibly exciting. Uh, you referred to the last decade uh, and uh, our combination of good fortune and, and skill over that 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 period. Um, but I'd put it in a broader context. I think there is more exciting exponential change beginning to hit globally and in a way that's beginning to impact our economies. So at any point I can remember in my near 40 years of career and tracing back in historical terms, I think we're into an era that can only be paralleled by the Industrial Revolution. Uh, Some of this is a continuation of the last 10 years. Uh, You know, a lot of what's happened, a lot of the companies that we've owned have been powered by progress in Moore's Law. Uh, we think that progress in Moore's law is underwritten for at least the next 10 to 15 years. Uh, a lot of our insights that come into that come from ASML, which, which is in itself a, a large holding. Uh, but that will end up in giving us something like a 60-fold increase in computing power. Uh, if you get that, then it's natural that more sectors will be impacted that we haven't even started thinking about uh, as yet in terms of most commentaries on the world. Hopefully we've started thinking about it. One big area of that, uh, which you may want to come back to later, uh, but just in the last really three or four months, we've seen the first concrete evidence that healthcare is beginning to be transformed by big data. Uh, I think that's critically important, but I'll I'll come back to, to one more Uh, Before handing over to Tom, I I think one element that we can't underestimate and why I make the comparison uh, only with the Industrial Revolution is that I think the rise of Tesla is but a symbol of a revolution in energy. Now, it's basically the ability to use energy in large forms without malign consequences. Uh, at very low cost that underwrites economic progress. We've had such revolutions only three or four times in human history. Uh, we're having one at the moment. It's driven by economics, I'm pleased to say, even more than by needs of climate change and, 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 the, and the like, uh, because we're now in a position where solar power plus storage is cheaper than any other um, of energy provision. That that's a fantastic transformation. And I think, you know, it will be really exciting over the next ten, fifteen years because I don't think the consequences of that. It will change our society utterly.
0: Yeah. And as part of that, the electrification of transportation is a significant theme. You mentioned Tesla. Maybe a question for Tom. Tesla's obviously a huge holding, but you're also invested in Neo, Chinese company. Do you think Tesla will continue to dominate the electric vehicle market, or will Chinese competitors and traditional car companies start to catch
2: up? I'll start with Tesla and then give you a couple of thoughts on the first point you mentioned. The point to understand about Tesla is that it's not demand-constrained, and there's very little likelihood of it being demand-constrained for the foreseeable future. It delivered about half a million cars last year um, in a new car market of maybe 100 million units so about half a percent market share. The constraint on growth is its ability to add new capacity. So I think for, let's say, within our investment time frame of 10 years, I think the broader adoption of electric vehicles will be a positive thing for Tesla and serve to fuel demand, which far exceeds what they're able to meet at this point. Now, as a follow-on to that, what Tesla is building is not just about electric vehicles. If you look at some of their other efforts around autonomy, software, generation plus storage, robo-taxis and the like. I don't think there is anyone else that is close to challenging that position. I I just want to pick up on a point on the way you framed your first question, which may be semantic, but it's quite important. You talked about our successful investments in the technology sector. And I think an important, if not crucial part of the progress we've made um, is that we haven't thought of it as a technology sector. We don't think there is a set of common drivers there or even more importantly, a set of common risk factors. We've been fortunate to see significant success in advertising through the likes of Alphabet and Facebook, in the retail industry, through what's been achieved at Alibaba and Amazon. And the reason for making the distinction is because a lot of the opportunities over the next 10 years come from the application of Moore's Law, ubiquitous mobile communications, advanced software, to other sectors, whether that's logistics, real estate, insurance, it's about the ap- application of technology, but it's really the technological enablement of new business models in areas of business that are not used to change, which I think is, the, is is what we're really excited about.
1: I completely agree with what Tom's saying there. You know, I think one of the difficulties that people have is that they do think in these very narrow sectoral terms and they consider their weighting. Uh, to these different sectors, and I think that that is precisely why so many people have found themselves constrained. Uh, you know, I was doing a, 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 having a chat with John Kay last week, and what we were talking about is that this is the power of applying Moore's law to industries which we previously thought uh, were protective from it, and I think, you know, that, that means everything.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Another theme in the portfolio, which is quite eye-catching. You have quite a few delivery stocks with um, Meituan, Dianping, Delivery Hero, HelloFresh. You've invested in both Wayfair and Ocado fairly recently. What characteristics has attracted you to this area of the market?
1: Well, we we should start by saying our connection with those companies was extremely early on, uh, Mary. Uh, We own Meituan as an unquoted company, we were investors in, in Delivery Hero from day one of his existence as a public company. I think what what attracts us is that these industries are effectively being newly created uh, by the existence again, uh, the existence of technological workings. And what we've seen is that you get not national, but very strong local somewhere between oligopoly and monopoly. So if you can identify early on which companies are likely to win in those areas, then the prospects for future growth are immense. So, you know, it's been remarkable how Meituan has beaten out, effectively, Alibaba's um, subsidiary in in this area and how the leadership of Delivery Hero has managed to make it operate in markets that are much more dynamic than its original local ones and spot... Are moving onwards, the need for not just delivery services provided by yourself, but increasingly are moving in uh, to much broader food delivery and the like. So, you know, I think these are classic entities where, in a sense, the the identification of local advantage is very possible. And you know, because people are put off by the the apparent lack of profitability at early stages when there's heavy investment. We think people are underestimating it. Uh, and at the same time, where inspired leadership makes a huge difference Um, so you know we built relationships with these companies in a way that we're pretty proud of and that's something that I want to come back to at some point you know an awful lot of this is who we talk to how we build relationships of trust through long-term support rather than simple uh, looking at an investment opportunity in the traditional uh, methodology of economics.
0: Yeah that's, that's interesting so moving on to your investment process what are the key metrics that you look for in companies when trying to source this exponential growth?
2: I would link this to what we really believe in about the structure of long-term equity returns, which is that returns are extremely concentrated in a small number of companies. If you look at the very long-run numbers, it really is a tiny fraction of the market that has, had, that has created the vast majority of the value. And that's how we would frame our task. Can you find the companies that address an opportunity that if you write about them is big enough for them to be one of these real outliers? Is there something about the company that can give an edge in exploiting that opportunity? Is there something about the culture of the organization that's very hard for others to replicate or might give it a unique advantage in trying to pursue its opportunity? So it's not about focusing on one metric or number. It's more, can you identify some of the ingredients which we think have driven these really great companies of the past um, and that can, can drive that long-run growth.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You talk about growth at an unreasonable price in your annual reports when you're finding these. Given your long-term outlook and the inherent uncertainty of the future, how do you approach valuing companies and then, and then adjusting this as, as growth is realised?
1: Yeah. So firstly, you alluded to growth on reasonable price. I think this is very important because, you know, we do not believe that we can or we should try to be successful with all our investments. And what I was trying to capture with that phrase is that optically it can look as though these companies that Tom's described very well there are very expensive on immediate metrics. But where we are right, they've become absurdly cheap on their long-term estimates. And it also pulls in the psychological fact. If I say a McGarpy investor growth at a reasonable price, everybody will think that's very, well, reasonable. Uh, you have to do things that people psychologically are comfortable with. And a lot of that, listen to what you're asking you know, we have to to uh, 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 to accept uncertainty. You know, I think that's one of the things that we feel very strongly about. I would almost go as so far as to say, I don't know, is the most important three words in investments, because no one ever knows. There is this pretense of certainty about the future that people apply to have. And, you know, when we're thinking about valuation, to go on to that part of it, we, we apply that to that. We do not believe that it is possible for even in the simplest part of the company to have one, secure, long-run estimation of the value of that company. The world is much more complex than that. And you think of many of these companies from newspapers onwards that people believed would always be there. It doesn't happen. So we have multiple different scenarios and we attempt to likelihood uh, adjust them. And very often the advantage in doing that is because of something you say there about the long term. We do not know where many of the big transitions and transformations that we're talking about at either the corporate level or the societal level will happen. But we are very, very often they will happen at some point. So being able to have a time frame that enables us not to worry about the when is very important. But I get incredibly irritated when people say we do not have a valuation discipline. I think we have a much better valuation discipline. if I may be so arrogant, than most people because we don't believe that we can be certain. We don't believe a spot PE is the estimate of the long-term cash flows of a company. Uh, and we accept that we may well not imagine everything that can happen. Um, so, you know, I think we're absolutely looking at likelihood-adjusted long-term values, but we're we accepting there's a great deal of doubt
2: about this. A lot of investors spend time making sophisticated and in inverted commas estimates of things that are impossible to predict? What will the level of the stock market be at the end of next year? I don't know. What will, be interest, what will interest rates be at that point? I don't know. If you told me everything that was going to happen this year in advance, would I have predicted what the stock market's done? No. And that in turn feeds into the way people think about valuations and estimates of earnings and so forth. But there are some things that I would argue are much more important to valuation or to assessing a company's opportunity that are almost utterly predictable. So the cost of generating energy from solar panels has fallen 20% per annum for the past 10 years. It's an almost perfectly exponential decline. The cost of storing energy in a battery has fallen 16% with every doubling of global battery capacity. So if you tie that in with what James was saying about we don't know when some of these things will happen, I absolutely agree. But what you can see is that the drivers of that change are really quite clear. So as a long-term growth investor, you're in a really fortunate position to be able to forecast some of these things quite accurately. It's simply a matter of thinking through the consequences for individual companies.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And just developing that um, on the other side, how how do you decide when it's time to sell a company? Um, might you be able to talk about any examples of where the long-term investment thesis has worked out and you've decided to sell?
1: I like talking about failures, Mary. so I'll, 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 I'll start <laughs> on that one. Um, one of the biggest mistakes, and I think it's got an interesting conjunction with what Tom's just been saying, is where we've definitively been too early now for instance uh we owned a, several um solar power producers um 10 years ago now at that point yes we had these deep underlying trends on our side but i think what was very difficult to estimate was whether companies had competitive advantage and you know i think this happens a lot in our industries um so what what you have is a period of absolute chaos as the technologies get developed and leadership almost occurs by chance, you know, just as it did with Microsoft in the 1980s in these new areas. And I think from solar power uh, to 3D printing, we've had a tendency to make investments too early, which we've had to guard against in, in recent years. Sometimes, of course, your company has simply reached maturity and trying to estimate that is incredibly hard. So, another genuine mistake in terms of outcomes. So, whether it was from process, I don't know. We sold Apple in financial terms way too early because what we're looking for, as Tom's saying, is this extreme outcomes that dominate equity returns. And we could no longer see how Apple would grow revenues, grow its business, grow its innovation sufficiently to meet those trends. Now, it's turned out to be the extraordinary levels of profitability of Apple have kept it going onwards. But, you know, I think it's really important that we keep those disciplines. So it was both absolutely a mistake in terms of the, the financial consequences for shareholders, But I think process-wise, we got it absolutely right that we were trying to see how it could be in the top 5% of outcomes for the next five and 10 years, and we couldn't see it at that point.
0: Yeah, and you have a, just moving on to China, you have a significant allocation to China, and you cite the shift of the global economy from west to east. Why is the east such an exciting market for you? And do you still see America as the primary tech engine in 10 years' time, or do you think it will be China?
1: So, people talk in investment a lot about reversion to the mean, which we don't actually think applies at the company level, but it may well apply at the national level. What we're seeing is a reversion to the norm of human history in the reascendence of China. Um, And, you know, I don't think one should be surprised by it. Uh, Now, we, I should stress, Mary, you know, although we believe that that is, again, likely to happen... We would not be doing this unless we had companies that fitted the template we've already been discussing. And, you know, I would stress that from Alibaba to Meituan to Tencent to ByteDance that we've been um, delighted at the reception we've had. Uh, the conversations we have, the ability to have a long-run relationship of trust with these companies. So, you know, we have a very different take on that than elsewhere. We think those are outstanding companies in their areas of technology. And to go back to what you were saying earlier, there is ample evidence that China will become the dominating force in the electrification of the global economy. So, you know, owning Neo and the like is important to us as well on on that score. Um I will start an argument on the American one. You know, when people say we have a lot of exposure to America, we don't. And I think you've grasped this. We have a lot of exposure to California and Washington states. Uh, We have very little elsewhere in America. And we think there is a form of capitalism on the West Coast that is distinctly different um, from that practiced in New York and Washington, um, D.C. But I think there is a complication here. I think we feel there is less evidence now of real innovation. Uh, you know, if you take the e-commerce the world or um, the social media world, you know perfectly well that the companies that are dominant now are the companies that were dominant five years ago. Uh, that is completely different from the Chinese part of it, and I do worry that, societally, you've got such strong advantages for the dominant companies in America that it starts to undermine uh, the exercise of truly entrepreneurial capitalism. Now, Tom is uh, in one of his many roles is head of our American department, so he might like to uh, have a, have a response to that.
2: I just want to pick up on the notion that China might at some point overtake the US in terms of technological leadership, and just give you an anecdote on that front. We're lucky enough to invest in Shopify, which is a platform that allows merchants to have access to many of the same tools that the giant online platforms have. Whether that is around payment, around merchandising, shipping, It's really the tool by which small merchants have been fighting back against the likes of Walmart and Amazon Online. And one of the things that's interesting about Shopify is that it's based in Ottawa in Canada. I was lucky enough to be chatting to the founder CEO, Tobias Lutke, and I'd seen an interview with him online. And there he talked about the idea that he would go down to Silicon Valley every two or three months and talked about charging his optimism battery, giving him new ideas and feeding that creative instinct. So I picked this up with him, and we were in Silicon Valley at the time, and and I asked him whether he was doing one of these trips looking for inspiration. And he laughed and said, no, no, I I stopped coming to Silicon Valley years ago. If I want inspiration, I head to the east coast of China. And I think what he was speaking to is the fact that the scope of what is happening in China and some of these technologies, the the scale of what is happening, the importance of what's happening um, to economic development is now on a completely different level Um, from what we see happening in the US.
0: That's interesting. How do you address the challenges of investing in China, just to go into that? so And it seems that the pulling of Ant Financial, um, which is a significant holding of yours, was the timely reminder that no one's bigger than the state in China.
2: Um,
0: And some people worry about the expansion of credit um, and poor reporting qualities. How do you... How do you counter the difficulties of investing in the East? What
1: we've had to do is try and build up deep local knowledge to put in on top of the global perspective. So we now have a fully-fledged office in Shanghai, um, and we have people there who are both loyal to our ways of investing and incredibly well-connected in China. And you know, I give a huge shout-out to Linda Lin, uh, who worked with us in Edinburgh, uh, long-term global growth for several years and has gone back to China. And, you know, she forges incredible relationships with these people and the ability to, to navigate through it. But, you know, on the whole, Mary, when people say there are structural problems in investing whether it be at the company level with the teslas or amazon this world where you know there was huge amounts of criticism of both the investments and the business model but also on a macro level we tend to be suspicious of those consensus views and think they're constraining investment as i said at the individual company level we feel the access the information we get Is very high quality. And to be honest, um, you know, I think if you analyze it company by company, you have about the same number of structural problems in China as you do in America or Britain. Um, you know, we did have the Royal Bank of Scotland. Uh, we did have various um, corrupt collapses in America that are too many to, to, to list. Um, you know, I think this sort of name coming on national, national basis is, is, is unhelpful. We've always accepted beneath that, though, that what you say is absolutely right. Uh, that there will be pressures to conform to a national system that are very clear. Now, I think they exist in most countries, but in a less, if you like, blatant manner. And I think you need to think about those as individual examples. We have had a certain amount of nervousness in the case of Alibaba and Henson Ant, That Jack Ma is such a larger than life character, so influential, so admired that the Chinese Communist Party is particularly nervous in relationship to him. Um, I don't think, to be frank, though, that we will know fully what happened with and and the consequences of that for several months more. We're beginning to have conversations. We're beginning to learn material. But I think it is remarkably bold to come out with some grand pronunciations about it at the moment. Um, so, you know, we work through this in detail, but trying to get to a position where we have a much deeper understanding of China through that office there and through our interests in is deeply important to us. We couldn't do it without that.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and moving on to the unquoted portion of your f- portfolio which you've substantially increased since you first made your foray into Alibaba in 2012. In the last two years, 18 out of the 24 new holdings have been in private companies. And in the previous three years, 33 out of 37 new purchases were unquoted. And 14 of those have subsequently been listed, which presumably indicates a high rate of success. How do you select and monitor the unquoted portion of your portfolio? I've spoken to other managers, um, Ben Rogoff and Walter Price of the Technology Trust, and they say it's just too difficult. So how, how do you manage to do it?
2: The first point to make is that we don't see from an analytical standpoint that there are huge differences in investing in the types of private companies we invest in versus some of our investments in public markets. You mentioned the example of Alibaba. Now that was valued uh, at 40 billion at the time we invested in it. It was not a startup. And the toolkit we've had to acquire in terms of the practicalities, um, analyzing the instruments, the legal capabilities, valuing the, the unlisted holdings. None of those things is especially challenging. I think what is challenging in private companies is that management teams have ready access to a very deep pool of capital. And therefore, they're very careful about who they choose to be their shareholders, who they choose to be their partners as they think about the long-run financing of their business. So simply having dollars available to spend does not help you. What does help you, what is important, goes back to relationships, forging deep links with these entrepreneurs who are trying to build something over decades and then partnering with them, being trusted as a partner over that sort of time period. And how do you get into that position? Well, for us, I think a really important factor is how we have behaved in public markets. It matters that we've been a top 10 holder of Amazon for more than 15 years. It matters that we've stuck with Tesla as the largest outside shareholder through the challenges that that business has faced. And so as we meet these private company entrepreneurs, not our reputation, but what we've demonstrated through action about how we behave as a proper partner to them over the next decade, regardless of whether they're private or public, is what's important. That's the foundation of getting access to some of these businesses. It's not about owning them as private companies. It's about owning them through their life cycle as they grow, um, regardless of whether they're private or public. And that's how you get access to some of the most attractive growth companies in the world. Yeah. How much
0: engagement do you have with these companies?
1: pretty considerable. I mean, again, analogously to China, we've set up a, a, a private uh Equities team uh, that is able to do this beyond just Tom and I. Though obviously we're, we're, we're deeply in, involved, we've tended to take the attitude that we're happier being shadow board advisors rather than formally part of the board. Uh, but we will negotiate that. So pretty regular. But you know, I, I would just echo what Tom's saying, but put it in a slightly different context in trying to answer your question, Mary. To me, the single most refreshing part of being an investor in private companies rather than public ones, is that they will be much more open about the real problems that they face. You know that they can't do that in public markets because otherwise the next day Goldman Sachs will write a a sell recommendation and the short community will come in. It's incredibly rewarding and incredibly helps your understanding of what these companies, what these industries can, can bring if you can have that conversation about what's the hard stuff. And, you know, that's the conversation, you know, to answer your question engagement that we are persistently trying to have. And I feel we're sort of living up to this because when it comes to companies going public, we tend to get very good allocations in that, which is helpful because, you know, I think it's a proof statement about what's going on. But I'll also turn it round. You know, I think. I hope Tom would agree with this. Perhaps it's just that, you know, me being older, I'm more surprised. You know, I would not have believed when we started on this eight years ago and I remember sitting at the next Esther to Tom when he was having long conversations with Ali about his taking that deal at that point. I would not have believed that a comparatively small investment house in Edinburgh concentrated on public markets could get such remarkable access globally. And you know, I think it is globally. We've talked about America and China, but you know, another very good example close to home that's mattered to us has been with Spotify. Um, you know, I think we built a relationship there as private companies, as so you know, had had huge implications for how we think and and what what we see.
2: Just an anecdote, but I remember shortly after we invested in Thumbtack, which is a platform for local services companies—painters, decorators, DJs, party organisers—and um, connecting them with customers seeking jobs, uh, seeking seeking people to do their jobs. And just after we invested, I got sent the, the board papers. And the first slide uh, of the board deck was split in half. On one side, it said what went well. And on the other side, it said what's gone badly. Now, I, I challenge you to, to find um, an earnings presentation for a public company, um, which, which starts out by breaking out what's gone well and what's gone badly. It was actually quite a shock uh, the first time I saw that.
0: Yeah, that's a great example <laughs> And just if we can talk quickly about some specific companies, Right. We'll about Amazon, which you um, have reduced, but it's still a significant holding. And um, there's a lot going on at Amazon. You've got AWS, and then the e-commerce platform um, with Amazon Flex, Prime, all by Amazon. What areas of the company do you think are most exciting? And do you think if it were broken up? Um, with the antitrust proceedings. Do you think that would change the investment case?
1: And, Mary, again, I'd like to try and put it in the context of everything we've been discussing and the origins. You know, we regard Jeff Bezos as absolutely critical to our thinking, not just in terms of owning Amazon, but because, really, he's provided the best anti-Warren Buffett philosophy about how you ought to think about the opportunities. And to go back to where we started on Moore's law, it was precisely him who, at the origins of Amazon, said... Uh, we've got this one weirdness about our business that everything um, doubles in capacity or halves in price every year and then paused and said, I don't know they will take us, but it will be very exciting. And I think that don't know, again, is critically important in this. So, you know, did we really see very early on that AWS was going to become what it was? Um, I'm not sure that we did, but we knew Amazon was thinking in those terms and that's where. Very... Now where to bring that up to date, you know, I think, in terms of the economics of it, AWS is currently the dominant factor. And this actually is one of the critical reasons why we've nudged down our holdings, and that's all it is. Um, we think that the entry of Alphabet uh, into being a serious competitor, the, the cloud in America and Western Europe, into a three-party player rather than a two-party player, and with serious um, willingness to cut prices, matters quite a lot for the economics of it. But also, we don't quite see what the next transformative element is. So, you know, in terms of underlying economic philosophy, we've gone from a world of sort of Brian Arthur type um, exponential returns to scale to his colleague at Santa Fe of Jeffrey West talking about how you have to make ever quicker leaps once you have that sort of scale once you become dominant in the world and we think the growth prospects for amazon are slightly more constrained i'd also say that i think jeff bezos is fast becoming at least as interested in spaces in amazon and with jeff wilkie leaving as well that does bother us somewhat you know these I, i don't want to build them up into it's the end of amazon um, and, you know, I'm not saying you would, but you know, plenty of journalists would do this. What we're saying is that the process maturity of maturity, if in their terms of moving on to day two, is getting rather closer and even may, may, may be there. Um, but I, again, I'd like to see whether Tom wants to add anything.
2: It's possible that Amazon Web Services might be the single most important company in the world. James will probably argue that that that's ASML, but in terms of what AWS has facilitated, the way it has relaxed capital requirements for new companies, it's allowed an explosion of innovation. It sits there quietly in the background as infrastructure, um, but I think it's hugely important as being hugely important as a facilitator of what's happened over the last 10 years.
1: We get some agreement, Mary, for saying, to because I'm conscious we didn't answer this, if AWS were, were spun off, I suspect it would be a multiple more valuable. Uh, by the ratings of most cloud entities, AWS is very lowly rated by implication.
0: Yeah. And um, for streaming services, you own Netflix and Spotify, some people are concerned about a slowdown next year following a bumper a year. Um, how can they differentiate themselves, um, especially when they've, they're dealing with um, competitors like Amazon and Apple with deep pocket.
2: I would start with a broader comment on this year and demand. There have, have been lots of areas where the constraints that we've had in 2020 and the impact of COVID has led to a surge in demand. And it's not rocket science to suggest that as the situation moves on, as we're allowed back out of our homes and back out into the world again, that the, the exceptional period we have been through and the changes that it's brought, Uh, will recede. It's what's not obvious to me, though, is, is that you go back to the way things were before that the way things were before is somehow normal. What has happened will have consequences. And it's going to change the way people behave, it changes habits. And the longer things go on like this, the more entrenched that will become. And you need to differentiate between cases where demand for companies has been just pulled forward. Um, where structural change will result, or where the scale of the opportunity for that company has changed. So to give you a trivial example, once we're able to go out and socialize again in person, I think people will be delighted to do that. There will be a surge in socializing. That is normal. That That is is, is part of the human condition. On the other hand, in pre-COVID, it was normal to host all, as, as an enterprise, to host all of your software and services in-house. Now, that wasn't a um, um, normal in the sense that it was the natural state of the world. It was a product of accumulated accidents that we got to the computing model that, that we've had. But that model has been brought severely into question by what we've seen working from home. So we won't revert back to on-premise software um, for enterprises in the future. And so that's the context for when you think about companies like Netflix Netflix or Spotify. Yes, there could well um, be a period, given the exceptional growth we've seen in the past 12 months, that these companies could see their user base grow more slowly. I don't think that will be a surprise. And I don't think it's relevant to the investment case if you look out over the next decade. I think what you can say about a company like Netflix is that their content budget is on a scale that's absolutely unprecedented. It is many multiples of what its nearest competitors can spend on content. And keep in mind that when we talk about nearest competitors, we're talking about behemoths like Disney. We're not talking about small companies here. The structural advantage that Netflix has in terms of the scale of its distribution and its ability to attract talent to spend on content, puts it in a very powerful position going forward. And if you want to tie that into structural changes as we, as we exit this period post-COVID, and what is the future of the cinema industry? How does the best cinematic content get distributed? I don't know the answer to that, but I think it will definitely be permanently changed by what's happened in the past year.
1: Mary, could I just very quickly add a couple of things on that, because we didn't really do Spotify work, um, and, and make a general point. So yeah. if Spotify, an analogy to Tom's thing, produces figures in the middle of next year that says that user growth has slowed down or gone negative, we would see it as an opportunity to buy more. You know what we're interested in is that process of transformation of the industry, which is only a quarter way over, and it's much more about Spotify relative uh, to the labels and their absurd take to the management and their absurd take in terms of managers of uh, uh, performers, and about radio and podcasts than it is by you know any one year's oscillation. But the general point I wanted to make is just as Tom was doing earlier with Shopify. We think that what's happening at the moment does give smaller, specialised companies an edge over their giant competitors. And not just the Shopify example, but Zalando or Wayfair that you mentioned earlier. We think they can do a better job in their areas than, say, Amazon can or Apple can with Spotify. So, you know, I think there is a real transformation of opportunity set going on here.
0: Yeah. And um, just one more company I want to talk about, US chip maker NVIDIA um, has had phenomenal growth this year. Can you talk about your outlook for the company and also how important you think the takeover of ARM is for NVIDIA's growth story?
2: What's really interesting about NVIDIA and in a way that's analogous to ASML is just how centrally important it has been in facilitating a lot of progress that is happening elsewhere, whether that's in machine learning or computer vision, self-driving cars, data center technology, just how much of that progress has been driven by NVIDIA's unique strengths in producing GPUs, graphical processing units. And I think the fact that they're in that position speaks to some of the cultural advantages that they have. It's, It's the fact that you've had a founder manager influencing the direction of the company over a couple of decades, pursuing a vision over that time frame that has seen the competition fall by the wayside. Again, it's one of those situations where you say, what happens if the power and capacity of these GPU chips doubles and doubles and doubles again? What sort of world do you have at that point? One of the distinctions between NVIDIA and ARM is that NVIDIA has been very successful of monetizing its position in the value chain, getting paid for the skills and uh, processes and products that it creates. That comes from the fact that it has unique technology. Um, The fact that it's such a powerful enabler of huge value creation elsewhere as means that it's been able to take a proportion of that value for NVIDIA shareholders. And I think that is the area that Arm has struggled in. There's little question that it's been a crucial facilitator of the mobile era, but if you look at the valuation of these companies, they, it was comparable if you go back three or four years, but you get to this point and NVIDIA is 10 times the size. And that reflects the ability to crystallize that value for shareholders. And the hope would be that under NVIDIA's ownership, ARM can achieve that sort of success, commercial success, um, sharing in that value creation creation in a way that's commensurate with the technical success that it's had.
0: Yeah. Just one question about the UK. The UK's got lots of great universities, but companies tend to get bought quite quickly by international players. ARM being an example, Illumina, another big holding of yours. Now you're looking more at early stage companies. Could you see more opportunities arriving in the UK?
1: You know, I I was very disappointed at what happened to Arm when it was sold to SoftBank. We tried, because we were their largest shareholder, Beta Gifford at large, uh, to try and see whether there was another way. There didn't appear to be. Um, but I think it was very upsetting and symbolises the problems that you do need those 25 years of hard work and vision that Tom was talking about there. Um, And I think that we have a serious problem in Britain in making companies grow from those great scientific roads into having the determination, the vision, the long term finance to get there. And I don't think the cheap sloganeering um, in in, in Downing Street helps at all with this. So we would love it if we could identify some companies as an opportunity to work with for decades to turning them into global scale. Uh, but we need to see evidence that there are those that have the skill set and the deep ambition to do that. And I think it's, you know, it's a much more serious problem than people tend to take it. And I think the temptation of taking the money that the city and linguistic collections with America offers it, it is all too great and all too easy. So I'm not I'm not personally very confident that it's going to be solved very easily.
0: Yeah. And I think possibly tangentially related to that, James, you were on the advisory panel of the K-Review in 2012, Mm. which assessed equity markets and long-term decision-making. And a number of problems were identified, such as short-termism and opacity around charging. And Scottish Mortgage should definitely be praised for how you've passed on the benefits of scale to your customers. Um, But more broadly, I wondered if you might comment on... The asset management industry um, and how much, if any, progress you think has been made since the review.
1: <laughs> well, in narrow terms, I think that there was material that came out of it, leading to the investor forum, that has helped, and I do think there are some serious, you know, investigations and commitments there to looking at, the, at many of the bigger quoted companies. Um, but I think, you know, in a sense, it's run against what we've just been talking about, Mary, that. Most innovation is happening at the unquoted company level, and we haven't solved that at all. Now, I might argue that John might argue that it was beyond the remit of what we were asked to do there. But it was absolutely in John's mind that, you know, because capital markets aren't really producing the finance for long run growth and ambition, that that was likely to migrate into the private capital world. And in that, I'm, let, you know, I don't think the scale of the finance, the patience is really there yet. So I'm ambivalent. You know, I see some signs, you know, to, I'm perfectly happy to be quoted on words of praise for, 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 for a peer. You know, I think Schroeder's, for instance, have become a lot more interested in this. How do you create great companies and getting away um, from fund management as simply being a source of income? But no, I think our industry is self-referential. Internally looking and obsessed by metrics that don't really make much sense in terms of creating great entrepreneurial companies. So no, I, I'm I'm still pretty worried about the, the, the financial services
0: industry. Just one final question to finish on: Tesla's done really well and made you loads of money. What do you think the next company is, James? You start.
1: Ah, uh, well, it can always be a surprise which, which actual company. But I am incredibly excited by what I was saying right at the start about the application of data to healthcare. So I would go for uh, the, the the newly merging entity of Illumina plus Grail. And I think they symbolise an awful lot of what we were talking about. And, you know, it fascinating how it plays into your having having spun out of something that was originally literally invented at a pub in Cambridge <laughs> to yeah. do to where they are now. Yeah. So I'll go for the grail, if said
0: something over, there? give me the particularly give me the next ten years.
2: Thank you, and Tom. I was speaking to Keller Renardo, um, the founder or founder CEO of Zipline last night. That's a drone delivery company that we own, and we were talking about the holdings that that we have in transport, you know, the the, the future of the transportation industry. And he shared the view that he thought we we had possibly the most exciting portfolio of transport companies in the world so whether that is is zipline and drone delivery or lilium and joby and flying cars um, full truck alliance and convoy in freight freight scheduling um, spacex relativity space uh, in in space rockets it's a lot more than than just one company, but I think it speaks to the fact that there is potential for enormous change in the transport industry over the next 10 or 20 years. And I honestly don't know which one of this collection is going to be the one, but that's the nature of things you can't predict. But there's just so much potential in this area that I think it's the one I, I would single out.
0: Great. Thank you. We've got healthcare from James and transport from Tom. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been it's been an absolute joy.
2: Thanks, John. Yes,
0: thank you for having thank you. us. Thank you. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot
2: may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times.